Good afternoon, good evening, good metal. My name's Coop and welcome to the Spoken Metal Show. For a while now, I've been speaking, or asked to speak, I should say, at Liverpool John Moore's University on a number of things surrounding and in and around the podcast and metal and the subject of music and, and all those type of things. And these events have been often, they have been not public. They've been just for the students and we've done that and that's been fabulous and it's been great. And I found them very, very interesting Personally, I've learned a lot, and I hope that a lot of students have got something from that as well. So an opportunity came up now where my friend Ned was doing a talk about metal music scenes after COVID-19, and he very kindly asked if I would chair this, and we got a number of guests together and had that conversation. It was a, you know over an hour and a half worth of, of conversation with some fantastic guests talking about you know what the actual metal music sort of scene would be after a pandemic and after the 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 effects of COVID-19 and obviously this is a huge huge subject that we weren't gonna uh, we sorted everything out in an hour and a half no that didn't happen we we certainly touched on ideas and, and a framework and as Nelson says hopes for what we would do after this would happen and what the expectations were what what sort of routes we could take Certainly some next steps and, and some ideas. We also went on much larger topics and much larger subjects we opened doors to that we talked about amongst metal and the metal community and rock and hard rock music. And I, I found it incredibly interesting. Fortunately, you'll you'll be glad to hear I don't talk very much on it and, and the and, and the panel do. I really, really enjoyed this and I hope we'll do many more of these and, and hopefully in a live context. And speaking of which Ned has a book coming out, which we'll talk about on the show, Metal on Merseyside, which brings it all home for me because that's where I'm from. And that scene and that community is incredibly important to me, as I've said before. To do to, For Ned to write a book all about this is, is fantastic. I'm very proud to say as well that I wrote the foreword for this book, which is you know only a, a few sentences that I, I, I was gracious enough to to be asked to, to put down and, and just to big up Ned because the things he's doing for the scene and the documentation of it and the exploration of it is incredibly, incredibly important. As some people have already stated, it's not just the Beatles, you know, that it came from, from, from Merseyside and it's not just Mersey beat. There is a whole other scene and I'm very, very proud of that scene, very, very proud of the metal community and beyond from that. And the book uh, just looks spectacular, just looks absolutely superb. And the reason I mention it is because what the plan will eventually to be to is to to do some kind of live event where you can buy the book and talk to Ned and, and raise questions with him and we'll do it in some kind of forum where I think we'll we'll work it we'll work it out as we get there. The book comes out in September and it'd be nice to do something in conjunction with it where we do as a live thing because the best part of the show you're about to hear was that there was feedback. There was a lot of people putting questions we didn't get through anywhere near all the questions, which is definitely why we should do it as a, a live show. And uh, they raised some interesting points. Even you know, people were actually asking questions in person. It was in a Zoom, but you know it was the closest we're going to get to being in a room. And there were some interesting perspectives, some interesting ideas of uh, of different things we could do and different ideas. And I thought that was incredibly valuable as well. Something we did uh, a while back at the at the music conference is just something I'd like to expand upon because ultimately the way we're going to solve some of these issues is by communication and dialogue. And we're going to talk to people involved in the community and directly involved in musicians, band members, crew, uh, you know, promoters, all that type of thing. And we're going to talk to them and talk to each other and work this out. And, and it will work out. It will. We will get solutions as long as we work together, listen to each other, and, and move forward. And so things like this and this, uh, this John Moore's University, all the things that they're doing with the students, 
I've, I think have been valuable, incredibly valuable. I'm going to let it, let myself listen away as well because I listen to I've listened to this again now and and even now this stuff have been you know a whole list. Of, get your pen and paper handy because there's a lot of books getting mentioned in this and a lot of things that you should check out and I'm doing the same. Nelson's got several books that I've got on order now just about Latin America and the music scenes there and it's real eye opening stuff and so be ready to to start going deep diving on 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 Amazon and Google to find those books because they're they're, they're going to be super important to to how we we help our community and how we help our situation and and how we help others. So this was a a really enjoyable experience. I hope you enjoy it. I'm sure you will. And as always, I'll post all the links to various things within the show on the post as well, so you can find where you can buy the books and where you can buy bits and pieces and and see these people and see where where their writings are and the things that they've wrote and and information that they have. And uh, once again, I just wanted to thank Joe for for the sterling work she did helping pull all this show together and um, very little problems and we and we got to the end and I think it was very useful as well. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. This is a conversation at Liverpool John Moores University that I was chairing with the umbrella of being under metal music scenes after COVID-19. Hey everybody, let me just uh, set that up. So I've, accept, I've accepted that I'm happy that they're being recorded, hopefully everybody else is. Uh, normally I start a show, the podcast, I'll just do it like I would do there. Good afternoon, good evening, good metal. My name's Coop and welcome to a very to a special event. It's something that I think we'll all, all get a lot from. Uh, there's some fabulous people that we pulled together to talk about various topics under the umbrella of metal music and it's uh, kind of after after COVID and after pandemic and what that looks like and what the scene looks like. So let's get straight to it. Uh, I want to introduce each of the, let them introduce themselves more, the individual guests we have. And I think uh, it's very important to understand all of these people. Uh, I'm very grateful that they give their time and we're dealing with some people who are in the trenches, who've been who are musicians, uh, promoters, and people are, are from academia who can really help us understand what the issues are and then hopefully come up with some solutions and some very practical things that we can do. So thanks for everybody to, to, for tuning in, if you will. And if you can post those questions, Joe is going to facilitate possibility, oh, the possibility to, to ask as a Q&A near the, end of the, near the end of this show. So what we'll do is I'll call the people's names out and they can introduce themselves and that gives me a nice easy life. So top of the shop, it has to be my good friend, Nadim. Hi, Mark. Yeah, <clears throat> so um, I'm Nedim Hassan. Uh, most people call me Ned. I am a senior lecturer at Liverpool John Moores University in Media and Cultural Studies. Um, I will talk, <laughs> someone's dog in the background there, if you can mute your mic. <laughs> I can mute that. Um, I, um, I'm going to talk a little bit today in my bits about some of the research that I did for a book that I'm that's being published in um, September called Metal on Merseyside, which kind of focused upon the metal music scene in Merseyside, particularly from a contemporary point of view. And I spoke with people like Andy um and and practitioners uh, like jess and and so on about their experiences during what was quite a a a changing period uh i started the research in 20 around about 2015 no 20 yeah 2015 and finished it uh sort of last year really so so that's me uh and I'll go over to Nelson, I think. 
Sure. Thanks, 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 Nadine. Thanks for having me and for inviting me. <clears throat> My name is Nelson. I'm a social psychologist and a professor at Florida International University, where I teach uh, visual methods and I actually teach a course on heavy metal music in Latin America in the Global Studies uh, and Social Cultural Department. Uh, my work has been mostly centered around metal music in Latin America and the Caribbean. And I mean, a shameless promo, we have two books that have come out in the last month uh, having to do with metal music in Latin America and uh, an upcoming monograph on decolonial metal music in Latin America that you can look at both of them in Amazon or other publishers. So those, thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. More than welcome, sir. More than welcome. And uh, that takes care of our academia. We have some very learned gentlemen here on the board, but also we, we it's very important we talk to people who are actually involved in the trenches as well. And it, it, it takes me to, to introduce the, the wonderful Jess Stanley, if you can introduce <laughs> yourself, please. Hello, uh, I'm Jess. I'm the drummer for hard rock metal band Ash and Reach. And I'll probably just going to talk a bit today about what we've done throughout lockdown and how we've kind of tried to stay as relevant as we possibly can and like maybe on how because we've released our debut album during lockdown as well which was probably the worst and best thing we could have do for the point we were at um so yeah that's just I guess a little bit about me <laughs> and then and last but not least uh, most certainly a very a surprise guest that we kind of at the last minute kind of cajoled onto the show and it's the it's my friend the wonderful Andy Hughes Hello, people. Uh, so, <laughs> before I get on, I have a caveat. I'm not doing, you know, whoever the dog that was before, I've got two of them, and they do really like enjoying in interviews and mm. things like that. So, they might take a, make her a cameo at some point in this. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, my name's Andy Hughes, and I run Deathwave Entertainment, which I've been, I've been promoting gigs for about 11 years as an independent thing. And prior to that, I worked with other people for a few years. And I, yeah, outside of running that, I also do lots of stuff. Like I work with Bloodstock um, to, to do the Metal of the Masters uh, project, which is to, you know, bring up um, unsigned bands and bring them to the attention of the wider metal community in the UK. Uh, and I also do... Lots of other stuff, like I've done, I've worked with Elton John and Carly Minogue and things like that, doing stage, staging and stuff. So that's, I don't know if that's plus or minus metal point <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Metallica have proved that we can use, we can talk about Elton John and it's cool. Uh, they, they allow okay, us yeah. now. We can cover, cover that. He's allowed us to make that. That's okay now. We're okay. I there think he did, he did stuff with Ozzy. We're, we're, we're good. We're good with Elton John. We're okay. Um, there you go. Coop so, so yeah. <laughs> Just to give the listeners a bit of an idea of how we're going to roadmap this, what we'll do is we'll talk about um, how to identify the scene and what we actually are talking about here. And we'll talk about why they're in potentially precarious natures and what's led up to that. We'll all, to give us a bit of context. And then we're going to talk about how, why, how and why those scenes are very important. And ultimately then what could be do, done to preserve them and encourage them and help these, these, these systems and services grow uh, to help a scene um, at the end like I say we'll, we'll offer up some time for some Q&A and this will be put out as a as a podcast which will also hopefully continue the conversation this is a huge topic uh, it's a huge thing to cover there's many sort of facets to it but within that I think there's some things that we'll be able to take take from this I want to start with Ned and um, with the, the, the first initial question is 
what are music scenes and in what ways are they important to hard rock and, and heavy metal sort of community music? Yeah, thanks, Mark. That's a, I mean, it's a big question, obviously. I think scene, from an academic perspective, the, the notion of scene is, is, is one that's kind of been debated quite a lot, especially, funnily enough, in, in metal music studies. I won't go into some of those debates uh, today, but from a sort of, from a basic level, I think when we think about the scene, we're talking about a vernacular concept that's used by music fans, it's used by journalists, but also by academics, primarily to connect music and place, uh, but also with a particular, sometimes with a particular time. So it can be employed to discuss relationships between a musical subgenre or style and a specific place. So if you think about something like grunge and Seattle and, and, and the city of Seattle, but it can also be used in a more generalized sense, you know, to talk about, we can talk about a global heavy metal scene or extreme metal scene. And I think when it's used in those broader senses, the, the word scene, the notion of scene becomes something that people can build uh, connections around or, or communities that might be local, might be translocal, might even be, be, be globalized. In terms of my research, the value of the term scene, I think, comes because I emphasize its role as both a spatial and a temporal concept. So I, I take seriously in my work the fact that when I talk about scene, I'm talking about a local scene. First of all, in terms of Merseyside, a region that has specific infrastructure, that has specific venues and potential spaces for fostering certain kinds of music production, certain kinds of relationships, and so on. But also, at the same time, I think we can think about the temporal dimension being really important. So scenes, in other words, scenes change. Scenes are subject, subject to historical change. Uh, places where people might find spaces of community uh, at one particular point in time may be lost may shift uh, and the people that once frequented there may, may themselves change, age, etc. I think also scenes are often quite romanticised and, and sometimes can be exaggerated. But among the bands and the people I interviewed for, for the research I did, it seemed to be the case that quite often the scene was talked about as something that was desirable something that was positive, but sometimes something that was quite difficult to achieve. Um, and in, in metal music studies, you know, scholars like uh, Dina Weinstein has talked about a kind of um, imaginary community, you know, this idea that the scene is something that we'd, we'd quite like to have um, and we idealise, but it's not always, you know, it's not always, uh, we're not always able to fully realise it or they don't necessarily live up to, to um, the, you know, the images in our, in our head. Um, so I think it's really important to kind of critically engage with people's ideas about scenes because they will be very different. So that, those are my initial thoughts on, 
on. I think it's interesting what you say about um, how the scenes are created and there could be numerous factors that help that. And then the, it's interesting you talk about the legitimacy of a, of a scene. If it's if it's been forced, it, it tends to not live as long as something that happens very natural. Um, Nelson, did you do you find that there was sort of hallmarks of what helped create a scene or helped kind of form it? Well, let me just say that I agree with a lot of the background that Nadim has provided on, on scene formation and the way that we think about scenes because we're scene members and we're also academics thinking about scenes. My, my initial reaction to any discussion about metal and any discussion about scenes is to always challenge the universalistic perspective of what that means. I mean, when we think about scenes, we, all, we usually think about, okay, this is how my scene looks and how my scene works. And then we try to extrapolate those same characteristics to other scenes throughout the world, right? So when I think about my research in Latin America, what I, what I learned while I keep on traveling is that, and we discussed this in a book that we published about six years ago on metal and the communal experience, uh, where we think about scenes as porous communities, right? There's, there are, these are not closed off communities. They are in constant interaction with their context, culturally, politically, socially, economically and in this particular discussion in terms of their health right so mm -hmm. take for example our title today our title is metal after covid but many mm -hmm. many scenes throughout the global south and in latin america are not living after covid and some of them will never live after covid because there are health disparities throughout the world that will impact the way that these scenes actually survive the pandemic Right. Yeah. So think, just think about one one piece of data that came out. I think it was it was about two weeks ago where there, it's estimated that in the U.S., 45 percent of the population is already vaccinated in the whole of Latin America. Less than 10 percent is vaccinated. Wow. Right. So that disparity in, in the health of the countries or the regions is gonna, we need to incorporate that into the analysis of how scenes are tackling COVID and how they're gonna survive it, right? Because many, many scenes throughout the world that are small have lost leaders, which their members have not been able to mourn. COVID and other diseases in, in, throughout the COVID pandemic, many of them have lost their physical places. Nadim talked about the geography of scenes. Many of, them, many of those places don't exist anymore, right? And think that on top of that, many of the scenes uh, throughout the global south, think about the scenes in Chile and in Colombia, who have gone through social unrest and massive social protests related to uh, neoliberal economic practices imposed by their governments. Those scenes also suffer from those uh, political mm -hmm. dimensions that are, are surrounding them, right? So when we think about mm -hmm. scenes, we usually think about very traditional things like people, place, and products, and how they come together, how we make them idealize, or you know, what they do for us, how they provide sense of community. But it's also important to, when we, when we talk about scenes, to take a geopolitical look and a global look yeah. in terms of, of what we're talking about and the differences that these scenes are living through and how some of them, it's, gonna, it's hard to say now, but it looks like some of them will not survive the COVID yes. pandemic, right? Yeah. So, so I think it's important. These definitions help guide us. But once we have those definitions set in stone, we need to break them apart and say, mm. how do these definitions work for different yeah. scenes throughout the world? Is it, is it 
Is it reasonable to say that some of the, the scenes that are enduring and, and, and stay around for a significant period of time to have an impact, are they born from um, struggle and, and, and things like that? And when something has political change, for example, the uprising that happens from that is, can, can have significant weight to, a, to a, a particular sort of musical style or whatever it may be. Things born from struggle, do they have a more enduring ability? Do they have more weight and gravitas to them? I think about punk as a movement, as a reaction and that type of thing. And do they have a more enduring and lasting ability there? Well, I'm I'm always I'm always weary about uh, you know bursting out with causal relationships. One thing causes the other. I mm. I I don't have you know the data on that will vary according to region. But but one thing we can say is that we know that scenes that emerged in in process of social uh, you know social uh, oppressive conditions, and we've seen this in Africa and in mm. Malaysia, and we've seen this in Latin America. They sing about different stuff. And they reflect yeah. about different things. And yeah. therefore, we would argue that, I mean, this is something that we argue in, in our work. If they sing about different stuff and they do it in a different manner, then there's 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 an inherent transformation of metal music in those scenes, right? Yeah. Right. They may they may last more or, or, or less depending on what they're reacting to, of course, and that might apply in, in many different places of the world. But right now, the major theme that they're reacting to is COVID. Right. Mm. And you can see it in bands that have begun to sing about COVID and include COVID issues in the, into their lyrics or do uh, concerts in, in benefit of people affected by COVID. You know, that's that's a that's a reflection of how communities are porous and they are actually interacting with this health crisis. Well, some, some of the often the, the touchstones for, for metal music are um particular like war and and things like that and and, and kind of the, the more extreme elements of life metal very much gravitates to that and you know these are some of the staples that uh, that people sing about and artists sing about certainly some of the, the brazilian thrash that 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 you hear is very political there's you know there was enormous amounts of in, interest when when sepultura first started coming to prominence they were talking about police uh, injustice and, and things like that thing, yeah what yeah there wasn't initially on the table and they brought it and then obviously the likes of rage against the machine and, and brought uh, highlighted struggles that would no one would even been aware of through, yeah. through some of the stuff they were talking jess how how uh, when you think of a scene as a musician what's that kind of view that you see it as as, uh, as a musician playing and looking out at the crowd type of thing I know it's just going to be obviously different for every musician, but me personally, it's always like, I know <laughs> with what Ned said as well, it seems not opposite, but like on one side of what he said, like I do see it as like a massive community, like almost how I've experienced the metal scene is like a big, massive family, like an extended family. And especially with things like when it comes to Bloodstock and like bigger festivals, you notice it more, I think, um, because I've been to like a couple of pop festivals, not by choice, but I've been to some. And then I've been to heavier ones. And you can tell immediately from the atmosphere. And obviously I can't go into it as in-depth as the other guys there. But um, it's just overall, it just to me has been like, it's been friendlier. You know, obviously in the metal health, uh, sorry, in the metal scene, everyone's big on mental health and stuff as well. So everything always just feels more accepting and friendly and and nice and that's kind of been my experience with it all it's just mm. been a, a good one for me personally I know there'll be people who've got different different views and maybe don't feel the same but for me that's 
it's been like, as I say, the community, family, family and stuff like that. Yeah, I, th- I think we can all agree and everybody listening could, could agree that there are always massive positives to a scene. It's normally, for the most part, there are obviously some negatives that we can get into, but they're, for the most part, it's incredibly powerful, incredibly positive. Uh, and like Nelson said, you know, that right at the moment now, COVID, and this is what we're talking about, is something that's brought everybody together. You know, someone from one side of the country to another side of the country, another side of the world can have mutual things about, okay, well, I can't tour anymore or I can't play a live show anymore. These are yeah. commonalities that, that everybody can share and therefore almost galvanise this whole uh, particular movement. You know, there's a there's a, a massive aching amongst the metal community to play live. Um, Andy, how does it affect us as a promoter, a scene? What, what, what does that kind of mean for a promoter? See, for me, I think it's, uh, it's, it's like a, it's, it's a mix of what Les said and what Ned Nelson kind of said is uh, we have a scene, which is the, like, the global community, and then we have my scene, your scene, our scene, you know, which is the local thing. And it's, uh, it's, it's one of those interesting things because there are certain things which are near enough universal across the globe. As in, you know, we all, we all, never, never enough all wear these, the band shirts. We all wear, you know, uh, we're far too much black. There's quite a heavy tendency <laughs> to us to be quite hairy um, and things like that. There is the, what's almost like the stereotypical uh, image of a metalhead, which also we've got a lot of bleed over into a lot of like the American biker culture and things like that. Things which are, separate communities and scenes but the crossover like with the tattoos tattoos there's a there's that you could say oh, it's arguable that the tattoo scene is a thing unto itself because tattoos aren't exclusive to the people of our you know predisposition but at the same time you've got like the local level stuff and this is where you've got like uh where you allow things like the Seattle grunge scene or the East Coast and West Coast thrash scenes or even like in the UK, the we had a, an explosion of... Between the UK and the Netherlands, we had the explosion of the slam scene a couple of years ago, which were f- fairly isolated to them areas and stuff like that. And it's, um, it's an interesting system, as it were. And it's, it's, all, it's all interlinked. And it's it, it is it must you know especially what if for Nelson like I must admit I think I'm going to have to have, I've not read any of his his book but I think I'm going to have to have a look because uh, yeah it it seems interesting how the interaction between the local scene which will ha- quite often have its own distinct character interacts with the wider scene. Yeah, I, I I found that certainly talking to at the moment I've been listening to some Cuban metal bands and talking to them about how they kind of perceived and how they kind of created their scene and it's fabulous that there's, there's there's all these different shades that come from more or less most of the time struggle and and in some cases oppression where they have this wonderful spring of of uh, they want to express themselves and I think that metal itself is, is in its own sort of genre is the meeting of a lot of parts of that Venn diagram of all kinds of different yeah. things, different cultures wonderfully coming together in a melting pot and then therefore creating its, its own scene. Now, how do we how do we sort of assign that a scene is becoming precarious? What are those 
signs that a seam may be becoming at its end of its life or even damaged or even not even able to grow in, in, in the first place? I mean, I think Nelson will have some really interesting things to say about this because of his research in, in the Global South. But from my perspective, my research focused primarily on, as you know, like local to here, Merseyside, metal scene. And I predominantly focused on live music scene. And I talked about how since really the, the early 1970s in, 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 in Merseyside and certainly in Liverpool city centre, we've had different what we might call live music circuits. Um, in other words, groups of venues that bands can play and different sized venues. So you can have small venues and then more kind of medium to large venues where when some of those maybe local bands get that little bit more popular, they can almost kind of graduate. So in the 1970s in Liverpool, you have like, say, uh, pubs like the Moonstone, uh, which was a, a sort of important breeding ground for bands. And then sometimes those bands would then go on to play at the Liverpool Royal Court or the Liverpool Empire, larger theatres and, and so on. So these sorts of circuits are really important for kind of what, what we referred to, what Andy referred to as kind of grassroots, new upcoming bands. Um, and, and I think when these scenes can become a little bit precarious in one sense is when those opportunities to form a band, to engage with your favorite music in venues where you feel safe when they become under threat and and i say that that there's sort of two dimensions to that you know i've mentioned the sort of grassroots thing about bands being able to form but there's another side to that as well and that side is about feeling that you can be a part of say a music subculture it doesn't have to be metal it could be goth or whatever and feel like you can go to that as a place and feel safe um and and feel that you are part of something and when that becomes on under threat that that i think that adds to a, a, that sense of precariousness one of jess's former bandmates a guy called daniel moran who's in a, 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 a thrash metal band called Reaper. I think he spoke very eloquently on, on social media after it was announced that the Zanzibar Club, very well-known club in Liverpool for giving chances to young bands, uh, a club that was synonymous with showcase events and so on and so forth, was closing down. Or I, I think it might be eventually being taken over by somebody else or, or whatever, but... The loss, he, he talked about the loss of that venue in terms of how that venue had been really important for him meeting other people, meeting uh, uh, people who would go on to be in, in his band. So I think that's one dimension to precariousness. The other dimension, from again, from a local perspective, if you take a city like Liverpool, is that certain types of music in Liverpool are more dominant than others because of 
particular historical narratives. So if you think about Liverpool, probably one of the first things that people think about in relation to Liverpool is the Beatles and Mersey Beat. And of course, Liverpool City Council know that and they have developed uh, tourist narratives that connect with those historical narratives that emphasises and brands Liverpool in a certain kind of way, which is totally understandable. But the problem is when those narratives become so dominant that other kinds of music scene are kind of marginalised or seen as less important. So there's less kind of investment, there's less prominence of those scenes. And again, that, that might be more, more vulnerable. So if you add to that things like geography, so Liverpool is an interesting city because of its proximity to Manchester. And those two cities, the way they've developed in terms of their live music scenes is, is, is really interesting because in the sort of 80s and 90s, what Manchester did, they were trying to kind of bid for the Olympics. They invested in arenas, especially the what would become the uh, Manchester Evening News Arena. I think it's called something else, something else now. Throughout sort of the late 90s into the early 2000s, that became the major Northern England arena for tours. Liverpool went the other way. They kind of invested in sort of cultural quarters and things like that. So you have like the, the Matthew Street quarter, the, you know, the Cavern City quarter and so on. So they, they did different things. And because of that, you could argue the kind of Liverpool is now what we call it, what man, music managers kind of call the B market and Manchester would be the A market. So mm -hmm. that, again, that gives that sense of precariousness. When you add COVID into the equation, what then happens is it only takes maybe the loss of, of one or two venues within a city like Liverpool, small venues that, 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 that have supported grassroots artists to then really have a situation where, as Nelson said, and I'm not not comparing Liverpool to some of the countries and, and parts of countries that Nelson's talking about, but you get that sense almost of something that's really under threat, something that's potentially in danger of being lost. And so that, that was where I'm coming from in terms of precariousness from my research. As I say, I'm sure Nelson's got lots of other things to say in relation. Oh, to but it. Nadine, let me, let me just say one thing. I think it's vital to compare them because yeah. when we compare mm -hmm. them, even though we do it in a casual conversation, it kind of opens up another discussion and reveals differences that we kind of need to tackle within the, metal glo the global metal scene. So one thing that you mentioned that I think is vitally important is the closure of physical spaces, right? And scenes need physical spaces to meet each other so that people can actually interact with each other. And just look at how those closures in different parts of the world generate different reactions like take for example the 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 what has become now almost a staple during this past months the online metal concert yeah. and i've seen metal concerts from isha lepros i mean i've seen vulture industries i've seen so many in this process bands that i have never seen live that i could actually see in the in the you know in the internet live concert but that has 
almost that is almost inexistent in the global south almost completely inexistent so so look at how when you think about the closure of a physical space can be navigated and managed in a different way in the global north in comparison to the global south so that entails that scenes in the global north will at least have one component of that scene development process which is sharing an experience and sharing music right scenes in other places of the world won't even have that because they not only lost their physical space but they don't have the resources uh, to actually engage in an online type of bank, uh, you know concert or event so these comparisons which we should never avoid i mean we should always do them but just be aware of the limitations entailed in any type of comparison are good because they reveal you know, the differences that people throughout the world face when creating scenes. So whenever I hear people talk about the global metal scene, my gut reacts immediately because I'm like, one of the things, one of the secondary effects of talking about the global metal scene is that we gloss over the differences between these scenes. And we tend to pay less attention to the challenges and difficulties that the poorer uh, or more disadvantaged scenes are going to be going through in the next, you know, in the next, this is going to take years. So it's mm -hmm. going to, gonna, they're going to go through in the next couple of years. So these comparisons in terms of the loss of spaces are yeah. key. Are, are, I think they're key. Very I, think that, I think the, the, the loss of spaces and, and these raw spaces where things can happen is, is, is something that does run through all the, the whole gamut of it. And I think it's, it's fascinating that you, you bring up the, you know, the challenges that, that all the, the whole world has and that we don't maybe consider. Like we, we talk about online shows, there's, there's places out there that don't have electricity. And so like, it's, it's that extreme. It goes that extreme as people that don't have access to an actual physical instrument, you know, and there's, there's, there's quite a big gulf, it seems, of understanding of what the challenges are. But I think there is a commonality and a thread running through it that a, a, a live space is one of the key barometers if you will of a scene either flourishing or dying i mean for every scene that exists there's a place where that scene was um flourishing from there's venues that are known for particular scenes because they that, that's what helped uh, generate them um, and so i think uh, the, the next question I've got, I've got here is probably uh flows on quite neatly from that and i want to put it to, to jess because I'm, I'm fascinated to kind of see uh, a musician's perspective on this and the question We've got a couple of preset questions, ladies and gentlemen, um, that uh, we've kind of talked about to give us some kind of parameters. But well, feel free to put some questions to, to the panel as well, and we'll do them at the end. But the next question uh, I'd like to throw to, to Jess this way is that uh, metal music scenes are often understood as live music scenes. Um, and what have been the challenges that musicians and live music industries have faced during this pandemic? Which is, what are those problems that we're facing then? I wrote down a couple of bullet points as well, just so I could run sure. But basically, it's like what Ned said before as well. Like uh, venues, venues are closing, so the more venues closing, that means when everything does open back up, these venues will still be closed. A lot of them, which means there's less places to gig, and also if you can get a slot, there's less availability across the whole year, making it more difficult to book tours. Maybe closer together if you're going to different places. Um, if there's less to choose from um also gigs being cancelled whether they're rescheduled or not sometimes say if you've got a tour uh, you've ordered posters you've ordered merch um specific to that tour when that changes whether it's rescheduled or not that's a load of money that is 
more than likely lost that you can't get back. Um, we're doing a tour with Haxon and Madhaven. Um, it was supposed to start at the end of June. Release the girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Release the girls tour. Um, we were supposed to do that. We've got posters for our gigs this year, but we were holding off as long as possible because you know what it's like with announcements. We thought it's going to get pushed back. Yeah. They, they'd, they'd spent money, printed off all their posters that was going to be signed. So they, they lost, I think it was £90 then. It doesn't sound like a lot, maybe to some people, but obviously for a band and especially at the moment with COVID and how you're not able to make money or do anything like that through your band and people might not have jobs anymore or be on fellow scheme. Obviously that's a lot of money to then have just go to waste in the, in the bin. Luckily they had the shirts on hold this, but um, if they didn't, that would have been about a grand worth of shirts. What are you going to do with them? And the, the dates have changed. Um, the lack of income that comes into whether it's your job outside of the band or the band itself, when you don't have any money in a band, like it's, it's annoying to say that it's a huge part, but you need money to help progress a band. Like you need it for your instruments, replenishing sticks, strings, practice rooms, pay managers if you've got them, travel, accommodation. There's just a recording, um, then printing albums, shirts, merch. You need money. It's it's very much an investment, a band, especially if you want to do it properly. A band is not something you would do if you weren't passionate. And you'd learn it very quickly if you weren't passionate or not when it does come to paying for stuff like this. So for the loss of jobs and not being able to gig and earn money, that's been like crucial. Like we we did a Kickstarter for our album, which we couldn't have released our album without the Kickstarter, but also meant when it come to releasing it, we then couldn't afford promotion for the album. So ideal, if you want to do it properly, you do want to pay for a promotional company. But that to us, I think it come to from a, a, pr- a proper company, not ripping us off, but it could have been a thousand something pounds to promote two singles, say from an album for three months. And we definitely do it, but we couldn't afford it because the, the money just wasn't coming in enough from jobs or not I got made redundant twice <laughs> during lockdown which didn't help either um so as I say like the money is a bigger part than than people think I think when we actually got um the two new members Kyle and Joe when we put our posters up one of the requirements we put on the poster was they need a job and I think uh, it wasn't many but we got one or two comments somewhere uh, down the line saying oh, why would you need a job? It's just a band, they're just a hobby. And it's like, well, it's not. If you want to do it properly, or at least we want to do it properly, you need it. Because the worst thing is if you're not being able to do something just because of money. Like if you feel you've got everything else, the passion, the show, the music, the money, it it, it does come into it. So obviously COVID, that has been a big slash on everything to do with that. And then of course as well, uh, like mental health and stuff I mentioned before a lot of people unfortunately have lost their lives during COVID a lot in the metal scene as well because they have lost their money or their music and their passion not being able to even practice for a year or so they some people forget their songs they just lose the passion people might have had kids they and I'm not saying you'd stop it for that but there's enough things that can happen in that amount of time to to put people off being in a band or think it's not worth it anymore it's 
you know, it's, it's to the wind, it's a second thought, then they just feel too rusty and some people don't have the passion to keep it going. Luckily we have, we've been so driven throughout it all. I was like, we're not letting this go. But we know a lot of people who've, who've just quit, left it, unfortunately also lost their lives. But this has all obviously been enhanced due to COVID. So that's yeah. I think, I think <laughs> what, what's interesting about what, what Jess was saying about is that we, there must be recognition of the infrastructure that surrounds the scene. And by that, I mean, I'm, before I hand this to, to Andy to, 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 to answer that as well, is that there's an enormous infrastructure. So there's everything from a promoter, uh, venue owners, people who produce shirts, people who manage bands, people who do stickers and, and all that type of thing. There's the whole industry behind this that gets created um, from a scene, you know, taking it out of a metal context, think about uh, a, a T-shirt that you've seen that says, I love New York. That was a whole campaign that helped, was, was, was tourism driven um, and helped kind of propagate a lot of sorts of different ways forward for, for a, a struggling city. You know, you can catch fire in a number of different ways, but a scene will often um, give birth to an awful lot of things around it. Venues can open because of a scene. Uh, they can close because of a scene, but they can also open. You know, people can, uh, artists can suddenly find work because this particular bands want to use them for their artwork and stuff like that. And these, this whole sort of, culture i talk about this a lot on the show of crew and people at the uh, uh crew members by life so they're like uh, their drum techs their sound techs their tour managers or whatever these grow up in a scene and as these bands break they go with them for the most part and it kind of becomes this wonderful uh compost heap of of great talent where you'll get people who uh, were following a scene are suddenly taken with the scene and have all the, the success that that scene shares Without a scene, as I, I, have I said scene enough, ladies and gentlemen, um, without saying scene too much, but it, without that, more things fail than we see with the initial eye, is what I should say. Um, more things fall by the wayside. And, and I think it's interesting, Jess brings a spotlight on how much, just how precarious that is as, a, 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 as being a, a musician and how much effort and time and investments of money, you know, what we're talking about here, it's ugly, but it's true, is that the money is a factor. Someone loses their job because of COVID and is made redundant or whatever. That has a knock-on effect. And, you know, people are passing away. People are dying from, from, from this. Um, it's, it, it has a massive knock-on effect. And I've, just before I hand it to Andy, the mental health thing is something that comes up a lot. I think it was Lemmy that said, you know, we're artists, we have feelings and shit. And yeah. he meant that... He meant that, you know, an artist, isn't, it isn't a throwaway job. It is, it's, it's, it, there's an importance to it. Yeah. What did everybody do when we went into the lockdown? Everybody listened to more music, watched more films, read more books, did more stuff that was involved with the artistic backgrounds. If they don't exist, people don't have outlets to listen to a song that helps them get through a day. And anybody here will have a particular song that reduces them to tears. They will have a particular song they listen to before they go to work or before they do something particularly tough. And everybody, will, when they work out, will listen to a particular song or a group of songs because that's how powerful it is. It's not a throwaway. These occupations aren't throwaway. They're important, uh, very important to, to, to a, a, a lifestyle, a, a, a whole culture. Um, Andy, what did you find then? Um, that was sort of the challenge for a because you were trying to start up or thinking about starting up a venue as well. Well, yeah, my my experience of the whole COVID thing, it runs 
quite parallel with uh, what Jess said. Like I was, I was uh, my primary job prior to uh, the COVID crisis and the first lockdown was I was working for an event company uh, doing uh, stag do's and hen do's. We were taking taking people on like. Um, uh, oh, like a, an adventure day kind of thing where they go and do like lots of it. Think of it almost like a, a boot camp kind of thing, you know, with like uh, obstacle courses and stuff like that. That was what I did as my primary day job, which is still within the uh, event sphere, but it's not heavy metal. Because uh, I am lucky in the fact that I don't, you know, I've... Over the 11 years, I've been running Deathwave as a promoter of heavy metal and rock. I've got to the point where it breaks even, roughly, but I've never made a profit. I know at one point, about ooh, about five or six years in, I once sat down and calculated it, and it was somewhere in the region of about £15,000 down over the course of the life of, of uh, Deathwave at that point, which I've... I've, I said I'm roughly about even now at the beginning of the crisis, but um, we, I made my living doing external event work from Deathwave. So I said not metal related, and I got made redundant almost immediately with the with the lockdown. I think I lasted. Uh, they kept us on furlough for about six weeks, and then they were like, no, we, "We're not going to be able to keep this," and got made redundant. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I lost my income, and then I, I went and worked for the NHS uh, track and trace service for the government. And I've, the good news is, is because that with COVID, the actual work was COVID-related, um, I, I was, you know, I was fortunate because I, I made a, a, a best of a bad situation, but that's been finished up now because, obviously, it's reliant on the, the COVID, and as, as the as the ease our lockdowns and stuff, so I've, I've been made redundant a second time. But um, at the moment, I'm currently not working, and I was, funny enough, I was I actually had uh, my first piece of event work since November, uh, no, um, music-related event work since November 19. Um, booked in for tonight, actually. I was supposed to be a bar manager at, at an event, and it got cancelled, <laughs> and it's been rescheduled till to July. So that's why I was able to come and do this. But uh, I, I'm at the position where because Deathwave has never made any money. Much like Jess is, it's the, it's the amount you, I need the money. I've had people approaching me saying, "Oh, do you, do you want when are you start putting gigs on? When do you want to do?" I'm like, I can't. Yeah. I I need to actually get enough. I'm surviving, but I need to actually get enough external work to make enough money that I can essentially restart Deathwave because I'm starting from scratch near enough. Luckily, I've got a, a reputation and I've got the brand name, but I've got no no like current promotions or anything to keep people. I, I'm, I'm literally going to have to start over and, again, do all the promotional stuff to let people know we're not dead, we're not got, we still exist. And that goes for everybody. Now, whereas, um, you know, like Jess, as she said, they were able to re release their album and they can still, you know, it's difficult practicing stuff, but you can still release stuff. Because my, what I do is 
based on the live stuff exclusively. I've had nothing to do. Uh, I could have done the the the, uh, the the streaming streaming events, but I'm going to be perfectly honest. As uh, I didn't feel that I I can contribute anything to it, because mm. you know, uh, you know, Dan, who Ned mentioned, who uh, was a, f- a former colleague of Jess, he actually approached me and said, "Well, why don't you do some uh, live streaming stuff?" And I was like, well, "To be honest, you can do." I, you can do it without me and do exactly as good a job because, well, yeah, and I and it, it did do, but uh, it's been a very strange thing for me mm. in that regard. So I said I'm going to be starting over, and then, uh, as I've mentioned to to the group pre- previously uh, earlier, just in a little brief chat before we went public, is uh, I've. Attempted to, uh, in in all the 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 UK government has promised various uh, funds and uh, you know grants and things to kickstart the the industry to get back to going, but uh, I've attempted to have applied for ooh, about about a dozen different grants or loans or whatever, all aimed at getting the event industry back on track. And I've uh, some of it I've applied for as Death Wave um, to you know to get get it back on get going and just do live gigs. But the other one is we've lost a couple of venues in Liverpool. Zanzibar uh, was one of them. Uh, so I also put the idea forward to seek grant, a grant to actually create a new venue to replace some of what we've lost, the infrastructure. And of all things, uh, it's been extremely frustrating, not because the money isn't there, but because it's uh, it's become a political score-pointing game. Uh, as in, a lot of the, the bodies are adding caveats of, you know, well, yeah, we're doing that. We're offering grants to artists or you know promoters but only under certain circumstances which are generally based around sexuality uh, ethnicity uh, gender and cultural backgrounds in you know other things and it's it's not really an effective way to actually restart the the industry and I think it's, uh, and also it's, it's like like Ned said about the Liverpool City Council has very much focused on the Beatles and the tourism. So the Liverpool Music Board uh, actually said to me, um, when I said it's nothing to do with the Beatles, what they actually said to me is, well, would you consider doing uh, exclusive uh, ev- events for... Um, you know the LBGT plus community. No, uh, uh, that uh, the the uh, the Grassmute Music Fund told me that uh, because I'm male and white, uh, I have to wait until they re- reach their quota of um, you know various ethnic. Um, what, what was the word they used? They. Um, the identified ethnic uh, groups uh, have priority. And if there's any money left at the end of it, 
will contact me and let me have some. The um, the oh, yeah, you know, I ha- I should have wrote it down. I, I I had a list in my head before, which I I, was, I said I'm going to mention if this comes <laughs> up. <laughs> I've forgotten it, but uh, but one of the other bodies, actually the the uh, the National Music uh, Venue Trust. The music venue trust actually uh, suggested that I um, look at doing a monthly women-only event in order to access funding, and this is—it's the absolute opposite of inclusive inclusivity, and it's—it's it's, as the metal community in itself, we are already a you know, a subculture of the wider world in a you know. We're an international culture. We are, you know, you can go anywhere. I'm, you know, someone, someone a picture of a, a biker or a, a metalhead or a goth or whatever, and they'll know what we are. They won't, might not necessarily understand the nuances of the specific thing, but they'll know what they'll know what they'll know what we are. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, lo- I'm losing track again. I'm waffling. <laughs> that's okay, Alan. Oh, no, no, no. You bring up some points that maybe people weren't aware of, and that's the, that was what that yeah. was one of the goals of what we're trying to do here is to explain some of the challenges that maybe people aren't aware of. It's, it's very clear in this country that the government has uh, completely no understanding of, of of a live music scene. They don't they don't yes. know how to help it purport, how, how to help it grow. They don't really understand yeah. it. And, and, and have dealt with it poorly. I think that's that's pretty much you know that that's for a lot of people to see the the recent thing of them holding the um, the football in a large venue with sixty thousand people, but not allowing yeah. people to go to smaller venues. There's all kinds of sort well, of this problems. Is, yeah, that's exactly it. Is the it, it, maybe it is a lack of understanding or mm. a lack of care. Or, I said I I personally haven't spoken to various organisations. I, I seriously, in my mind, I think it's. They're looking for um, opportunities to score political points of say, look, we did this, but mm-hmm. it's they're not the even though this money this money is designated to help restart the event industry, it's nothing to do it's with not. the event industry. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's yeah, score points. I think yeah, I think that you know, history's um, littered with things where the governments have used um, social um, uh, sociological events to to their own advantage. I think that's that's very evident that that can that can sometimes happen. Um, but I think we'll we'll tear ourselves to kind of the more or less getting to the end of, of of things here. Like I said, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to put some questions to, to the panel, which I suggest you do, and um, we'll see if we can collate them and get them as we approach the the, the end of things. But it's big question time, really, folks. It's that we, we now go, okay, what what can we do here, uh, individuals, our community, uh, from a government point of view, what can we do? We've identified that there's precariousness. We've identified how important these scenes are. I think we were all kind of knew some of these things, but maybe not to what extent they were. What can we actually do uh, to affect change? Uh, Ned, what, what's your thoughts? Yeah, obviously, as you say, it's a it's a hugely different question. You know, I mean, obviously, we've got the UK gov from a UK perspective. We've got the government's events research program, which has is, is, has tried to kind of examine risks. So we've had the tests, the test events taking place. A number of them took place in Liverpool, uh, circus nightclub in April, the Sefton Park event. 
uh, we've had the download pilot uh, very recently. So there, there are some positive steps being taken to sort of see how we can open up events again. Um, but I think that the key challenge is a lot of these pilot projects seem to be for larger venues and they don't necessarily, they're not thinking about how we can protect the grassroots venues, just that four week um, extension of the restrictions has put a number of small venues at, at risk of going of going bust because they can't pay uh, the, the rent and, 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 and so on. So I think there needs to be a really urgent uh, level of support for the smaller grass uh, grassroots uh, uh, venues. Uh, I, I, so I think that that's really, really important. I mean, that, you know, the, the um, you know, the, the, some of the sort of social distancing policies and so on that were in place were just absolutely draconian. And of course, with metal music in particular, it's probably affected more than some other genres because of the fact that it's a very physical kind of music in a way from the you know the vocalizing of the singer through to the way in which people kind of want to get close to the bands and and so on you know you don't have necessarily those problems with social distancing in say classical you know music concerts and and, and so on where you can where you can have spacing of audiences in in, in in different ways so i think that that that's a key issue and then going back to something that Andy was say, saying as well just before, I think also what needs to be taken seriously is, and it's something that the likes of the Sophie Lancaster Foundation have campaigned around, is, is taking seriously just how important things like subcultural activity are for people's everyday well-being, you know, and and so so when Andy's saying that he's struggling to reopen and do the things that he used to do, the the things that Andy was doing were, were really catering for a community of people of like-minded people who would get together at certain venues like EBGBS and and uh, or Zanzibar or or, or um, Outpost. Uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. So I think there needs to be that recognition that these things are important. They're important for, for a variety of reasons. And, and, you know, and it's not obviously it's not just metal, but but it is things like, you know, nightclubs. I, I read a I read a piece on um, nightclubs saying that only the really kind of major nightclubs like Ministry of Sound have been have been given kind of funding by 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 the government and the rest of the sort of smaller nightclubs where diverse gatherings of people you know come together and can feel safe whether they're part of lgbtq com communities or whether they're they're part of um um uh, you know kind of alternative subcultures etc until that gets taken seriously as something that that that's absolutely sort of fundamental to to societies then then i think you know we're always gonna 
we're going to have some of these some of these problems. So that'd be my those are my initial thoughts. Sure. Nelson, what did what what's your thoughts on on what we can actually do uh, as individuals and as a group and as community to to kind of maybe save some of these things or at least reverse some of these trends? Well, I'm I'm not really sure about what we can do. I mean, I think I think Jess and Jess and Andy might be more. Uh, they have more on the ground uh, recommendations in terms of what they can do immediately, right? I'll tell you two things that concern me, which I'll, I'll label them as hopes. I have two hopes that things that might, might come out of the, the pandemic in, in terms of the metal world. My first, my first hope is that we can start learning from scenes in the global South in terms of how they navigate the relation between metal and society. Because for example, scenes in Cuba right now and scenes in Venezuela, examples for which I know I'm going to take some lack. I'm going to, yeah, I know people are going to react badly to them, but it's not a coincidence that in those two countries, government supported metal venues and government supported metal TV shows have been ongoing throughout the pandemic mm. in, support, in support of those communities, right? Of course, some people don't like the examples, but I'll defend them until the very end. So and I have the and I have the the ethnographic experience to prove them. Uh, so I'm I'm fine with that. That's my first hope that we can start learning from other scenes and start thinking about scenes in the global metal scene in a more diverse manner, right? My second hope is that our reflection on COVID doesn't foster uh, doesn't foster even more our idealized sense of community in the metal scene. Because when we talk about metal scenes, we tend to think about things like family, everybody loves me in the metal scene, everything's going fine. And metal scenes are also piles of shit sometimes. They're difficult. They're difficult to navigate. There's a lot of tension in community. Every family has a racist. Every family has a homophobe. Every family has a sexist member. And scenes, all of our scenes have all of those. Even if we, want to, even if we don't want to recognize that they're there, they are there. And my hope is that in our concentration of talking about the implications of COVID, we don't forget that COVID is one more of the many battles that have been, you know, that have to be dealt with within the metal scenes in order to make them truly, uh, you know, cohesive and truly family-like and truly supportive environments. So COVID is the icing on the cake, and we're going to yeah. deal with it as we go along, but it, it, it just taps into a whole host of other things that metal scenes throughout the world Global North and Global South need to deal with. So those are my two hopes. I think I, I think it's a, that's fabulous. I think it's 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 great that we we I mean I agree wholeheartedly that we should see it as a lesson as a, like you know this is a warning that should be adhered to. We should learn the lessons from that. And as much as we're there's a as a metal band in the northwest of England and um, listening to uh, Brazilian metal bands riffs, they should also be listening to what they're doing from a social point of view as well, uh, and engaging with them and talking to them about the challenges they face and getting some kind of mutual understanding about how to move things forward. I think that's fabulous about the, the TV shows and the government's involvement in that. I think that shows at least a move forward into a recognition of just how powerful um, someone's uh, someone's outlook can be and someone's social situation can be. I think it's incredibly powerful. Jess, is it is it a case of, if it can be as flippant as, uh, as maybe it can be, um, is it a case of just going to see bands and when they play live or is there much more that, uh, from a musician that you need from, from a fan base? Well, it's more saying, I was going to say about what, like 
as as if you're a band member or if you're in a band, the things you kind of do to stay relevant, especially in like COVID-19. So I think one of the biggest, if not the biggest thing you need to be focusing on if you're in a band or anything to do with the music industry is social media. Like if you want to grow your music or the amount of people you're speaking to, you need to be active pretty much every day. You need to always be engaging as well, like not just posting, say, in a band's uh, perspective, not just posting a song and then posting a gig date. And then boring of people like to see like the personable side of you as well. They want to see kind of bits and bobs that you do. Also, you need to be, you've got to almost play like the Facebook game or wherever it's connected. Whereas you need to be um, always like liking comments as well because it helps boost it because Facebook has this thing for some reason. You can have a really good announcement or post, but say if in that first hour it gets no interactions or little interactions, it won't push it. And then you're not getting your information out to your audience. But it's nice to do this anyway, whereas you're always going to want to be liking people's comments, always replying as well, because there's nothing like, you know, being a fan of a band, like, for example, if you were just taking one of your favorite bands, because um, we, we know people in the in the lower scene who will only listen to unsigned bands because they're sick of all, you know, the older people, they want to listen to new music. And you just replying to their comment, saying something nice can like make their day and it makes them want to stick around. That might be enough to make them come to a show or buy a piece of merch. It's about like building the bonds with everyone because you want to do that anyway. It's not like you're pretending to be nice. It's I think what everyone should be doing, like especially if they are in a band, obviously not so much for the promotion company. I'm not sure how it would work in a different way for that because I don't think it make much sense. But, you know, answering people's questions, just be in there because I think it's especially if you're a smaller band like it can be in my personal opinion quite off-putting if a lower band isn't interactive with the their fans because you think well they're the people you're putting your music out to you they are the people you want to be on your side so be nice to them they're there for you to make your dreams you know come of reality so you should be as good to them as possible and you know it'll make them like you more uh also i found what has been really good especially over lockdown for me um i've been doing other things as well especially with being made redundant i've had more free time to focus on like what i can do so now i'm i'm self-employed officially i think of us today <laughs> but um i've been doing twitch and streaming not even music like video games but i've got all my the band stuff linked to it so if you get new people coming in raids just new names from anything you'll just I'll just say hi you know introduce myself also if you like rock or metal I'm in a band I'm a drummer in a band type this in chat and you can have links to social media so I've been constantly not annoying people but linking it that way and I've got we've got quite a decent amount of people like we did a web fest which is another thing I'm gonna say is really good to do um most of the comments I could see on the YouTube afterwards were a load of people who'd seen us from like my stream going like oh there's Jess blah blah you know it's like bringing different communities together. So I've been doing that and like art and they all kind of are helping each other, if that makes sense. So that's been a bonus all around if you want to grow different things. Um, as I say for web fests, obviously, I know you can't do them everywhere, like some places in the world physically can't. But we we did one that was kind of a live stream. We tried last year where um, like I was in my room sitting there on a kit and then, we all edited stuff together, which was an absolute 
pain in the arse basically to sync it all up and get it right with no tracks behind it but we did that uploaded that which which we done pretty well we actually got a load we got some sales of merch and more followers from it and then last saturday we did one and this is all through um there's a group online called new wave of classic rock and the name they always have problems with the name because it's not just classic rock music and obviously new wave of classic rock doesn't make too much sense but it started off i think as a group of um just a group of friends or people like like-minded people who just liked unknown you know upcoming bands and it was just a facebook group and now it's got like 19,000 members or something so they're actually using it for even better now and they're able to put on like small shows and gigs and they want to do them all because they're really trying hard to push for upcoming bands so they've got anything so they've, they've got all like local bands there's bands like mason hill it's all lower bands but that are kind of breaking through but they'll do it from any stage you know if they like the music or anything they'll promote it and they're really good especially considering they're not promoters for doing stuff like that so web fests stuff like that's been really helpful as well especially because we can't gig obviously um it was mentioned about um metal to the masses and i think competitions like that like especially metal to the masses are really really good because you know if you win it you get the a really great opportunity of playing bloodstock which is probably at that point the biggest show you're gonna have done ever um I, I'd say that one in particular was amazing. Uh, what I wouldn't say is any old competition shows because the, uh, there's a lot I've seen and, and we've played them as well. There's a lot of competitions where it's purely based on audience vote and I don't think they're a good idea because I think it can lead to like unfair winners basically. And that's not just like a, a personal thing. Like um, for example, you could have a band that's just started. They're in high school and I'm not saying people younger don't deserve it because I've been in a band since I was 16 but um they could have just started bring the whole of year seven or whatever to this gig because they're the, the popular people they got about 50 students there and then there could be a band who does deserve it but they've just brought less people and then a band that sounds like trash <laughs> ends up winning because they've got all their mates who haven't even been listening to the show to vote so I think stuff like that Obviously, it's all just touching briefly on the surface of everything. But I think stuff like that doesn't help because then, you know, you're not helping bands who are actually trying. Um, but as I say, with Bloodstock, you've got the judges who decide and who deserves it as well, as, as well as an audience vote, I think. Well, it was when we did it like a, a couple of years ago. So that is good. And then always just networking. So I suppose that comes in hand with all the other stuff. But make sure whenever you're meeting new people and it comes up not to be irritating but like if it does come up in music you know at festivals at gigs there's no harm in telling people you're in a band like it's an underground scene we don't get the the same uh mainstream like promotion as other types of music you don't get the same radio play I think it was like uh bring me the horizon I think they got played on BBC one like a couple of years ago and I remember being so surprised because they are pretty heavy for such a mainstream radio and you think god if you've got to be that famous to get on it there's you know there's less hope so i think you've just got to always be trying harder especially if you are lower down just to get your name out there and do pretty much anything you can to survive it especially when it's like this <laughs>
Brilliant. That's it. I think all, all, all the stuff Jeff says there is all, all, all incredibly valuable and relevant. I will embarrass Jeff just a tiny bit. I was in a show at the Outpost that Ashen Weeks played, and I watched Jess do exactly what she was talking about there. Talk to people, engaging with them, conversations, you know, people were asking about drums and, and things like that and, and what their thoughts on this was and how they did this as a band. And that kind of interaction is absolutely paramount to the creation and stabilization and then encouragement of a scene. And that um, that instruction, I think, is incredibly valuable and a big part of how we, we do move from this. I mean, uh, Ned talks about an awareness thing first, that we, where these scenes are coming up or being destroyed or being fractured and, and damaged in some way. Nelson talks about his hopes that, uh, about what we can do and, and, and a longer, more bigger arc of where we go with this, about how we solve some of these problems, incredibly important. And before that, I'd just head to, to Andy to talk a little bit about his side of it. If you can kind of get all your questions ready, we'll do that a little bit at the end as we kind of clean up things here. Um, but Andy, I mean, what, what can we do? What, what are the things that, just some of the practical things that we can engage ourselves with to, to help support and, and, and get ourselves through this pandemic? To be honest, I think, uh, again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to stop talking. I think Jess, she's doing a really good job. She's just making me look bad. <laughs> Sorry. No, Jess, Jess, do you want a job when we get going again? <laughs> no. Um, no, it's, she's got the, the total right thing of, like, especially for the artists, it's, for them, it's been a, a huge, huge thing to, to keep in touch with their fan base and find interesting new ways to, to engage with them. And now the... The best thing they can do is to figure out a way to translate it back to the local scene, the live scene and stuff, because there will now be people from all over the world who have been exposed to them purely through the power of the internet. So not you know, as she said, lower down you know, the, the grassroots band. I don't know if someone's gonna come and travel from Colombia or Japan or something to come and watch, you know, Ash and Reek. You know, I'll be honest, I've had Ash and Reek play for me a few times and they're fucking good. You know. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's the, it's, there's a, a certain, oh, there is a technical term because when I was in university, we had to do a thing on it, but there's like a limit to how far people will travel for a a given event and they like the artist needs to be of a certain level a yeah. certain notoriety and all the rest of it before they'll travel and that's partly how we get end up with the local scenes so it's like artists who've put a lot of effort into like their online presence through the through the pandemic like Ashton Reach it's maybe not the international but you might find now that all of a sudden when you come you transition back to the live scene it might be viable for you to like do like say a full uk tour which it might not have been viable beforehand purely because you've you've reached people across the country who might be willing to travel that little bit of distance yeah and i said it's i think that is that where as a not necessarily grassroots in the local local but as a national level i think that's where the next key thing is and of course that will hopefully you get increased people who would never have gone out to see ash and reach because they'd never never heard of them prior to watching this this stream on twitch 
mm. about computer games or whatever, which happened to have, you know, be hosted by the, an artist in that band. And that will drag up the, the, the grassroots local scenes because, say, they would, I would, I would have a band from, you know, it's the old traditional method of how, why do local promoters exist in the first place? Because an artist who lives in Scotland or in, you know, Ireland or, you know, London, so it, 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 it goes from like even a band from, you know, from Sweden or South Africa or anything. They will contact me, contact me or a booking agent will contact me and say, right, we, you know, we want to come to your, your neck of the woods. Um, you know, we've got people, we've got people who know who we are, but we need you. We know, you know, who people, people who might be interested too. So between us, we've got to work together I make a crowd at this event. Um, they, you know, Ash and Reach will find that their their reach in geographic terms is what two, three times what it was. Oh, yeah, we people... met loads of people <laughs> where they'll now yeah. they'll now buy merch, but it's not even from anything from the music side. Like you say, if they've come through the video game side, they now really like the band and they're like, "We're going to buy your merch. We're going to see you. What yeah. shows are you playing?" And that, like, that's an interesting byproduct to what's happened with with COVID. Is that the hope, the hope is that uh, it's created a want, it's created a need to go and search out bands and seek out these bands you've never heard of before, and then yeah. by extension go and see these live bands to interaction with these members and go, okay, I'd like to see this as a, in a live context. The hope is that that's that's that a new fire has been lit underneath underneath yeah. people to to go and do that. Ned, how are we doing for questions? Is there is there enough time? Should we do maybe one or two? What what's your thoughts? I can't see them on here, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, we've got, I mean, this is scheduled to go on until half past six. So we've got about eight minutes or so. Okay. Um, We might be able to go slightly after the half past mark if people are happy to stick around. But I don't want to just throw a question out. Too long. long. Yeah. Joe, do you want to, have you been keeping on the questions? I, I have. We have actually quite a few questions and comments. So I'll, I'll tell you, what, I'll work. I'll if I if I read some of those out, I'll then throw it back to um to you, Mark, to, okay. to coordinate responses. Joe, if you can um, filter out all the comments that say I look like a homeless person, we'll probably <laughs> have about two or three <laughs> questions on there. But fire away, fire away. Okay. Uh, so first of all, from uh, from John Maxwell, um, he did actually say, I don't know if you're still here, John, um. I'd be happy to ask this in person. Um, oh, you are. Um, sure, I can. I can. I can pitch in. Over to you. Then. If, you if you can all hear me. Yeah. yeah. How are you doing, folks? Very oh, good, yeah. by the way. Really enjoyed good. it. That, I'm. I'm a. I've just said I'm very long in the tooth. I. I used to hang out in the Wilsons in the eighties. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Not the nineties. <laughs> no, not the nineties. That's that's how many brain cells went to that. I don't know how bloody work as a lecturer at the moment. But anyway, that's going off the point. I. I I've. Tinky with playing bass and hanging out with bands in the town. I remember there was this culture of um, pop-up gigs kind of came and went. And Liverpool, you know, I was inter- I really interested in what Neb was saying and other people were saying about, you know, that, that uh, Andy about the difference between Liverpool and Manchester. And, and in Manchester, you've got this kind of big gig economy. In Liverpool, it's, it's, it's a lot of it's been about these sort of smaller venues sort of kicking on for bands. And it's a great thing. 
obviously we're being hit by it with COVID. Uh, I'm not a massive follower of the scene at the moment, but I, I, I can I, maybe there's some kind of currency in that and in in encouraging pop up gigs in, in different venues, and, and that, mm. that that's how it sticks. Because I know it certainly worked back in the 80s. I think now with the mm. with with the technology we have available, it could even work now. But I'm I'm just throwing it out there. I, I, no, I think that's a, it's a very interesting point of view. Um, the, I, if anybody wants to chime in, feel free to do so. But I think it, it's cause it's almost anti-promotional, a pop-up gig, in so much as that you, you're doing it and it's pop, it, by its very nature, it's popping up almost un, un, unannounced. But there's incredible value in that. Uh, we all can talk about these bands that we see that play surprise shows at venues and that type of thing. And I think this, there is, I think you're right, there is currency in that. If you heard a large band was playing a surprise show, you know, that day. You, yeah. it, it creates a, a, a beautiful um, sort of moment in time. And I don't see why that isn't possible for, for bands to do, you know, uh, to do some kind of pop show. Certainly maybe at a digital level as yeah. well as a physical level. I think there is some value into that. I don't know if anybody's got some thoughts on that. I just, just think of the Beatles' Walton Village fate in 1957. That yeah. was a pop-up gig, wasn't it? So, yeah. You know, I think- yeah. I think it depends on the the size of the band and how much traction they've got in that area. Because even if, say, mm. if we're from like Liverpool Merseyside, we might have more fans in like Manchester or somewhere else. And you know how reliable people can be. Sometimes if you ask them too soon, they just they'll come up with an excuse because they're too tired right now. They're in the pajamas or whatever. So I think it's one of those. They could be really good, but then also I'll. I don't know if it would be too much of a risk depending on where you go. Like mm. if you have to spend money to travel there, you have to still kind of rent a, a venue. Cause unless you're like a, someone who just sings and plays guitar, it's a lot of effort to set up a whole drum kit, rig, sound desk, everything for maybe like for, to not have the promotion to go behind it. And maybe not as many people see it uh, the way promotion works on Facebook anyway, as well. Sometimes you don't see mm. a post until three days later. So I, I don't know how well it would work. I mean, I think, probably I for think some Jess, bands. We'd, but... we'd, have to, we'd have to just get, it's, it's musicians and creative people becoming even more creative. You yeah, know, yeah. A, a long time ago, um, several musicians in the studio decided to take all those instruments up on top of the roof. And, yeah. you know, and, that, and, and now that has become, you know, iconic. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's, it's a case, I think you're right. I think it just requires... You'd have to have the, the right place and the right yeah. time. Somewhere that's got obviously yeah. going to be have a lot of people anyway. Not somewhere yeah. like that's a pub down a back road that people might not necessarily know about with no mm. car park and hard to get to. You know, you just have to plan it, I yeah. suppose, roughly. So. Uh, Joe, is, I, I mean, as we've yeah. got any more questions, I'll try and get through them quite quickly. If anybody yeah. if any of the panel does have to leave, you know, please you know, feel free. We'll, 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 we'll run as long as we, we can. Like, uh, but if there's any more, yeah, keep the questions going. This is eight. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, the, there's, there are a number of um, comments and it's really good to see people's experiences. One thing that's come up is um, I'll, I'll, I'll refer to um, Lena's version of this. There are a few people who've said things on, a, on this angle, which is around this issue of inclusiveness and the, some of the parameters that are put on funding applications that Andy was talking about. So in terms of that, Lena had said... Um, isn't it possible that that might create actually more opportunities and that might encourage perhaps groups like women, people of colour to have more involvement mm. and actually we could see it in that way. And Lena had made the point that um, she, I don't think subcultural status equates to the issues surrounding gender and ethnicity. 
um, B, who's had to leave, had also said on that same point that you know, um, their view was we should be considering how we can be inclusive, uh, that mm. subcultures, anti-racism, LGBT plus liberation have a long history, perhaps mm. finding new ways to work with different communities is a way mm. the scene can continue to grow and attract government mm. funding. So on that, that issue about inclusiveness and funding, um, there were um, a couple of people saying, actually, is this something we need to look at more positively? Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I, I found that incredibly interesting when, when Andy was talking about that, and, and hopefully you can expand a little bit more, is that, um, you know, the, the government were putting sort of parameters in place, but they're not necessarily, it seems some of the listeners were saying, that those parameters are actually potentially very positive, um, is that they promote um, you know, elements of society maybe that, that haven't received the the, uh, the involvement that they should do at a societal level. You know, we talk about metal being, you know, very uh, positive uh, on a number of fronts, mental health, racism, homophobia. These type of things are always very quickly challenged, I believe, in the metal community. Um, Andy, so what did, what did, did you see those parameters as, as negative or just something that you that weren't part of what you were see, doing? And... See, I kind of knew it would be a hot topic. That's why I was... It's going to be, but it's something oh, yeah. I think it but needs that's to be... A little bit why when I was actually talking about it, I was, I was losing my track because I was trying to frame it. I was trying to figure out how to yeah. frame it. Positive discrimination, on the whole, is a good thing. But uh, what my main complaint was was it's not about the should we work with these uh, various um, ethnic you know, LBGs or these various communities and it's like uh, what was it that she said she doesn't I can't sort of about uh, she doesn't think subculture status is a good enough well put it this way right, right? Uh, religion is a personal choice it's you know there's no uh, physical, actual, you know, scientific or anything. It's just something you believe. It, you believe, you know, that's your belief system, and it's what you believe, and you identify as whatever religion you do. Um, the, you know, you can't, can't pick your colour of your skin, but you can definitely pick your religion. There is definitely a long history of discrimination and for religious reasons and things, and there are, you know, protections on religious views and stuff. I identify as a metalhead, and I don't mean as in, I'm not trying to insult it. To me, it's the same thing is, look at me. I have a, a beard, I, the clothes I wear, the, uh, the way I look. You, know, you can't see, I've got purple curtains. You can't see on this wall because it's brown looking. I've got a purple wall. I, the outside of my house is painted black. I ride a motorbike instead of have a car. Is I the music I listen to? Um, it's it is a cultural thing because it influences so much of my life. And to me, maybe not other people, but this is where discrimination happens. It's people not understanding people who don't have the same mindset as them. To me, metal and being a metalhead is every bit as important as somebody's religion or mm. of that kind of thing. So to me, and this is where, now, I choose to work in the music industry because I love it, 
but it's also an extension of my, you know, what I, my belief system as such is what I identify as. And this is where my frustration comes out. And I said, I'm not dunking on the various things. What I'm saying is, say there is a fund specifically called the Grassroots Live Music Fund. Mm. And when I speak to them and I tell them, right, this is what I do. I work with grassroots artists and they come back and say, you don't qualify because you're not working, you know, you're not in being included, you're not making specific um, efforts to work with people of color or whatever. And it's like, it's, it's false. Let me, and that's not you me, saying I like you're to, including anyone as well. That's obviously you're yeah. doing, you're including everyone. I think that's what yeah. you're is that it's not like you're saying, yeah. no, these people aren't allowed to but be yeah. here. What is more inclusive than do you like music? Yes. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just add, add two cents to this discussion before it gets any further down yeah. this line. Yeah. Uh, discrimination for being a biker and for being black are two very different things. Yes. I mean, those two <laughs> things agree. are simply not equatable. There's, mm-hmm. there's no book in which they're equatable. So well, going back to having said that, going back to the COVID pandemic, it's important for us to recognize, just like we did, like just like we tease apart the idea of scene and, and family and everybody hanging together in happy, in happy cohesiveness. The COVID-19 pandemic hasn't impacted everybody in the same way. Mm-hmm. Racialized people throughout the world have been more impacted by COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Women have been more impacted by COVID. That's data. That's not opinion. That's data. Yeah. So if, if governments and governments and institutions during pandemic times take specific actions to bring people who have been even more marginalized during the COVID-19 pandemic into the fold, those things need to be celebrated by the metal community yeah. because it's just, it's just a moment in time, right? But it's a moment in time that needs to, those things in my book need to be celebrated and we need to be very, very careful when we equate centuries of oppression faced by black people and women and the racialized people of the world with being metalheads. Those are two very, 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 very different things. That's when, why when I came back to it, I specifically picked religion because you can pick whether you follow a religion. You can't pick your gender, your sexuality or your skin color. But that depends, that depends on where you are in the world again you might be able to pick your religion in a place of the world where picking a religion is an option. But there are places of the world where picking a religion is not an option. It's just a given. And if you're not into it, you will have a very big problem. So, so and these are the things that we need to, I think these discussions are very good because they allow us to tease out the nuances in in the ways that we we create these discourses around metal music, right? So for me, for me, at least my perspective, and I, I respect your perspective, Andy, but for me, there's no way that I could equate the oppression that I might feel for being a metalhead with the equation that the racialized people. Oh, oh I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm oppressed at no point. Or even, the, or even, or even yeah. the religious people of the world. No, no, no. What I'm saying is, um, I said, it's like, that's why I said about the political score, score points is, is, it is because we are not identified as a culture of any sort. Um, we are not, and it, we're not oppressed. We don't exist. So when 
something so when there is something offered as for music and i said and it's the a greater wider problem in the the, the uk government especially is they aren't supporting the music scene they're saying they are but what's actually happening is they are using it to support culture uh, you know societal and cultural things that aren't music related at all right but let me just say this for example if i'm a taxpayer i'm a taxpayer in the us yeah if black people were were if black people like they have been have been most affected by covid in comparison to other groups wouldn't i as a taxpayer promote the idea that the government should actually do more to address the plights of those populations in that particular pandemic scenario yes but at the same time there's is, always a but there's yeah, always if, a but if it's if the government has oh, oh i'm going to break it down here's i'm trying to do it like say the government has sent right we're going to put a thousand pounds into uh various projects i know that's a, a ridiculously small number but it's right so uh, we're going to attribute 500 pound to helping people of color who've been affected by uh you know covid We're going to put £500 into helping the music scene restart because there's all the people in the music scene have entirely lost their careers and stuff like that. And then the people in the music scene, the people of, people of colour who get the £500 get it because of their hardship yeah. based on their skin colour. But the people of the on the music scene... Are getting they have to they only get their 500 pound yeah but the under, also at the same time people of color yeah i'll, I'll just sense? say this I, so it's by proxy no, it, it no, by proxy <laughs> people of color are getting a thousand pounds i'll just say this sense? and i don't i'll just say this uh and maybe we can do another another question or topic yeah but yeah we we gain very little by conflating the challenges of oppressed groups of the world and the metal scene and making them fight among each other as if yeah, these were yes. competitions. I am right? not so, saying so, this. So it's, it's no, no, no. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm saying not. the government is redirecting funds from where they're saying it, it's being directed. That's well, my complaint. It doesn't matter well, think, who and why. It's just that the money being offered to the music scene. You thought in your situation it was for one whole thing and then you were told something different when it came down to it. Yes. Is that why? Yes. And that I is... Think, I, I no. think what's, what's very clear is that there's, there's still a long way to go with an understanding on, it, on, on quite yeah. a few levels about exactly what where the government's stance is and its importance within that. And also... You know, I think there's something very clear is that is just how important uh, a musical scene can be to uh, I I encourage change and encourage awareness about various things yeah. that maybe a community wouldn't have been aware of or a group of people wouldn't have been aware of. You know, the Sophie Lancaster uh, Society and the foundation was born from someone who was uh, murdered because of their, their their differences and how they looked, and that was. You know that was an example of uh, of, a, of of an awareness, almost a wave of awareness, where people were like, "Listen, you know, we need to start looking at something." And I think, you know, the, the points that Nelson makes are incredibly valid. These these are important times with which to use to help cure some of society's problems, uh, or at least 
help and understanding and awareness of these problems. And music, for me, has always been uh, a brilliant beacon to do that with. I think, uh, and I think there's, there's many more longer conversations. And I think it's very powerful and very important that we are having these conversations where nobody's shouting, no one's forcing the, the, the dogma, no one's forcing the, the... Everybody's trying to understand how we can take a very awful situation with a pandemic and help us improve as a society, not just with a metal community, but as a society, I think it's incredibly important. Ned, uh, sorry, Joe, do we have more questions there? Or do, we, do we need to wrap up? Where um, are we at? We've, we've probably got more, more comments okay. and ideas, unfortunately, than we yeah. can actually deal with, and that is uh, without, without going on a nice for a very long time. I mean, one, I, I think there have been lots of really interesting comments from um, um, people talking about particular ways to, you know, reward young bands, support young bands. Maybe one thing we could just pick out to finish on that relates to what we've just been talking about was that um, um, Kay, who's now had to leave, said, I'd be interested to hear from um, Jess about her experiences as a, as a woman in the metal scene. And um, Nelson was talking about data earlier. I mean, one thing that's come out of some of the data that's been assembled about the pandemic is the way that women have been particularly affected by precariousness. And I wondered whether there was anything to say about that from uh, Jess's point of view on the panel at all. So that might be my, my final suggestion yeah. for something we could we could look at. I've not had anything directed to me more negative since the pandemic because obviously with our band at one point there's obviously me he's a woman we had a vegan at this time a butcher um you know there's just it was a we're quite a mix we're quite probably interesting to look at and see but we all we all get on because you know we know we don't all share exactly the same opinions but we do. Uh, so as for lockdown, nothing's really changed for me. The only thing being a band, obviously there's less of us. People always assume I'm the singer, but I cannot sing. So you would not want me to be the singer or the groupie. I mean, as if I'm the groupie or the merch girl. Um, when I was setting up my kit once, as I guess is a bit of a funny kind of, but not story. I was asking the drummer at the time, this was years ago, oh, you know, if this is your kit, I'll need to do this, blah, blah, blah. Just having a talk with him. I must have been speaking to him for about 20 minutes about the drums in particular. And then at the end of it, he leans off stage, shouts across to his singer and goes, hey, where's the drummer for the band? And I was like, we not just been. And they went, it's her you've just been talking to. And he went, oh, sorry, I thought she just wanted to fuck about with the kit. It was part of my language, but that's what he said, you know. So it's, there is... I don't think he meant anything horrible, but obviously something's ingrained in there where they don't think you can be in the band or at least like do anything other than sing. But um, as I say, yeah, nothing extra from COVID. I think people know now, but they just, they people don't usually assume. They don't think you know what you're talking about or think you've got your head screwed on. Listen, I'm saying this is, this is a smaller part. It's not always like this. Like I do have a, overall quite a pleasant experience with, the metal music industry especially now because there's more awareness like you say and people trying to push for more things you know for like women people of color different sexual orientations there is more for it now but definitely not too long ago it was very much more you know what are you doing here you go yeah they uh you've got a way out here if you're not in the band and it's like well no i am in the band actually so mm. one <laughs> in the nicest way but yeah i think you've got to have you've got to have a bit of a a strong spine you've got to have a 
take a bit of that you shouldn't have to put on mm. like a hard face or take it but you, you're gonna get that I think you're just gonna get stuff like that at least every now and again so it's just how you tell them to shut up and no this is what I do and I'm sick at it <laughs> so watch <laughs> yeah so that's that's kind of a bit of an insight I think I think I think just we have come quite a way but uh, I think if, uh, certainly some of the conversations we've had today highlights just how far we've got to go we've still got to a bit of work to do as, as, as a group of, of people who enjoy metal music. Um, there's certainly some stuff that we need to work on. There's certainly some, some understanding that we need to do. And I think we're all of the mind that that's, that's a good thing. Let's, let's start using this pandemic and using the difficult times to really just take a bit of a look at things and, and, and let's, have a, let's have a bit of a broader conversation about some stuff that we may have not talked about before. Ned, are we, uh, are we just about good or did you have something to say? I just wanted to come in and add to that a little bit, if I might. Um, I thought that was really interesting what 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 Jess said then and and that term she used coincidentally enough um, that what are you doing here um, Lena Dawes who who I think might have left now but Lena who asked that question she's written a really good book called What Are You Doing Here about oh, her experience oh. as a black woman in. Mm-hmm. Um, in in um, metal music communities in in the US, so I think you know people who, who want that different perspective on on things ought, ought to seek seek that that out. And yeah. I absolutely agree with everything that the people have said around discrimination and, and and so on. It is worth also pointing out that from a historical point of view, I think it's important not to talk about say. Liverpool metal music scenes as as being in this kind of rose with rose tinted spectacles on, you know, mm. it has been a scene that that has had tensions, and some of the people I interviewed for the book talked about how how they were persecuted, they were discriminated against because of the way they looked, and that led to physical violence, the threat of physical violence and actual physical violence. People talked about being beaten up because in the 1970s you had quite strong subcultural tensions between, say, skinheads and kind of rockers and people with long hair that actually led to, you know, led to violence. So when I talked before about these venues being kind of refuges for people and, and, and places where they can feel like, you know, to use Andy's terms, you can feel like themselves, it's part of their identity. I think that's really important as well, you know. Um, so, so I, you know, I absolutely. Uh, which is not to say, you know, that, that um, you know, we we can sort of um, uh, kind of compare, as Nelson said, you know, racial discrimination, no. fact, which I've experienced as a as a young man as mm-hmm. well at, at school with sub sort of what subcultural discrimination, but there are some shared experiences in relation to some of those things not least the idea of feeling different feeling a li- that little bit vulnerable because of the way you look um, but of course you know we're talking about apples and oranges in, in, in oh yeah i uh, i remember it's not not it's not particularly a prevalent thing now but going back to 
I'll say it seemed to stop probably in the early noughties, but going back to like the, the late 90s, uh, circa 97, 98, uh, I remember hanging out uh, outside the record shop uh, that used to be underneath Quiggins uh, on a Saturday. And uh, it was, there were quite a lot of people of like an alternative, you know, metalheads and stuff used to congregate there. And uh, I remember there used to be ga- uh, gangs of lads who used to come down to go goth bashing, bashing. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, and it used to be a regular thing. It, 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 it does still happen. It's like South Lancaster is a testament to that. But it's, it's definitely not as common as it used to be. It's, I know when I was in my teenage years, I got goth bashed quite a few times just for the way I look and what I wear. So, yeah, it's inclusiveness as a whole has, it we've got, we have got a way to go, but it has improved on all fronts uh, so much, especially in the, about the last, last 20 years. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I think this has been incredibly valuable. I've got a lot from, from listening to, to everybody that spoke today about a bit of understanding of, of scenes and movements and, and then understanding how these are created and what we can do. And I think that some of the things that said, and you may, you know, maybe people listen to agree and disagree, but the fact that we're having a very um, civilised conversation about these is how we're going to go and move things forward. And that's always what we should be trying to do, ladies and gentlemen. And I think um, as, as someone who enjoys metal music, I've always found it empowering and positive. And I think that all the best music comes from that place. Um, Ned, are we, is, is, that, is that about it? Are we, are we kind of done? Should we, should we say our goodbyes? Or? Yeah, I think we should... First of all, thank everyone, um, the panel, uh, the, the audience for some really great questions. Um, but yeah, thank thanks to the panel for a, a really, really vibrant discussion. Um, and let's hope we can do this again sometime, maybe, maybe even in the flesh at some point. Oh, yes. Well, th- we, we should do this live uh, most definitely <laughs> because I think that it allows for a, a more uh, interesting discourse. I think I think as well, um, Ned, if you can... Put something of a small reading list together of, of your work and Nelson's and some of the things that we talked about. I think that'd be very useful as a touchstone so we can go back and, and read some of these things that we talked about. I think that'd be very, very helpful. So I just want to say thanks again to, to, to Joanne, who's been helping out there massively, uh, bouncer in a way. Um, I appreciate your time uh, and I appreciate everybody's time, all the panel and everybody that's listening. And um, if we're done, I, thank you very much. I appreciate it, Kang. Thank you for having thank me. <laughs> bye Thanks, everybody. Thanks, bye. Rob. Thanks, everyone. This has been uh, um, really good. Thank you so much. So, as I think you'll agree there, there's some really interesting conversations, some interesting topics and points and viewpoints brought up there that we can explore and we should explore and really look at what we can do to help our own music scene, both on a a, a smaller level in our own community to a much larger one based in our country and then beyond into other countries and other situations we're not, uh, you know, don't have a full understanding of, and need to understand more how we can help support them and uh, and the challenges that, that everybody faces. Because this is a moment in history; it's a moment which will affect the music scene and how music is dealt with and, and produced and and listened to, and how the live scene works. It, it will it's already changed to be beyond the, the landscape it was before. So it's all it's all changing, and it should be. You know, there's a lot of negativity, and sure, there is. I've talked about it before about venues closing and what have you. 
But we need to look forward now about what we can do to lay the seeds to help things grow and cultivate those seeds to help them blossom into a, a beautiful community and a beautiful scene. Once again, I'll put the links to everybody's bits and pieces on the social media. And it remains for just to say thank you to everybody, particularly thanks to Ned for asking me to be the chair there. I, I really enjoyed it. I hope you do, did too. And I, uh, I say time and time again, and it was going to be this 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 weekend would have been a show. I would have seen, for example, Crepitation at, at the Outpost would have been the first show I went to coming back, and that's been cancelled now because we're still, they're still messing with what's happening with the with with when we the the restrictions get lowered or lessened, if you will. So I've got a couple more planned now, and and I can't wait to 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 get out and start seeing some live music again. And I, and I know you all feel the same. So it simply remains for me to say. Thanks for listening, and I will see you at the show.